Hey, this is Alex Shaw, and you're listening to The Soul of Life. I tell you that's a pity, cause I can't get enough. How do you know that you're conscious? I mean, don't you just kind of know? We're all familiar with the saying that comes from the philosopher Descartes, I think, therefore I am. But if you start asking around among scientists that study the brain, and you ask them to define consciousness or define the mind, you realize we are still sort of in the same dark ages, just like Rene Descartes in the 17th century. The single thing that we know best from our own first-person perspective and understand the least from the perspective of objective science. But are we seeing signs of a dawning enlightenment in this field? Signs of progress in how we understand and study consciousness? I think this is kind of important for everyone, but especially professionals like me who teach people how to have healthy minds. We kind of need to know what a mind is in the first place. So I spoke with Dr. Jonathan Schooler, a professor of psychological and brain sciences at UC Santa Barbara, someone whose resonance theory of consciousness is kind of becoming like a grand central station, a hub that 19,000 academics cite in their own research. What I think is one genuine possibility that consciousness represents some fundamental aspect of physical reality and that through some process, and we speculate it's resonance, that um, smaller bits organize together into increasingly larger hierarchical organized conscious states. We talk about the implications of his theory in which biological systems within our own body and between all matter itself can develop a rhythmic sync with each other, a kind of harmony that allows them to enhance and modify each other in certain circumstances. If you take two metronomes and you put them on a uh, on a shared uh, plank and then you set them off, initially they will uh, be doing their own separate thing to their own timer, but within a matter of minutes, they will come to synchronize. He calls these phenomena nested observer windows, a sort of channel that opens up between objects and systems. The electromagnetic field really may provide some kind of a medium for consciousness. The implications of these nested observer windows, or NOWs for short, leads us to discuss Stephen Strogatz's monumental research in the mathematics of sync. Not only do we have a shared resonance between different portions uh, within our uh, bodies, but also between people. And we discuss practical implications for being focused. What I like to say is, are the lights on and is anybody home? There's this bumper sticker that I quite love. Don't believe everything you think. Just because some chatter went off in your head doesn't mean that you necessarily have to endorse that. Schooler's lab has expanded on the conventional and two-dimensional thinking about mind-wandering as always being associated as problematic, usually linked to anxiety and depression. When people are mind-wandering, they're less happy than when they're on task. But he's discovered what he calls the silver lining of mind-wandering, or at least certain types of it, that he calls mind-wandering because he figured out a way to measure what people were doing when they had the most creative ideas in their day. The ideas did not happen when they were at their desk. They happened when they were in the shower, mind one. They happened when they were uh, gardening, when they were, you know, maybe even paying the check. Night dreaming or daydreaming may be the solution to cracking that uh, impasse. 
where's the line between mind wandering and mind wandering? Don't want your surgeon mind wandering. We'll talk about how to create observer windows, more mindfulness in your own mind that can lead to more productive and successful habits. All of us can move on virtually every dimension that we're interested in. And this is the importance of what's known as the growth mindset, the recognition that you can really develop in virtually any area if you set your mind to it. Welcome to The Soul of Life. I'm Keith Miller, and this is episode 17 of season two, Mind Wondering, the Resonance Theory of Consciousness. My guess is that you know some significant proportion of all creative ideas have happened in showers. I'm Keith Miller, and my podcast, The Soul of Life, is here to help you remember who you really are. I'll bring together people who have gotten off their treadmills. I'll have conversations with athletes, musicians, doctors, scientists, healers, and entrepreneurs to discuss the fascinating edges of our knowledge in neurobiology, psychology, and physics. This is The Soul of Life. Please take the time now to subscribe to The Soul of Life wherever you're listening. Give it a thumbs up or write a positive review. That's the best way to make sure you don't miss out on these amazing episodes planned for season two. Dr. Jonathan Schooler is a professor of psychological and brain sciences at University of California, Santa Barbara. He has authored over 200 scientific publications with over 32,000 total citations. His research has been supported by more than a dozen governmental agencies and private foundations. He teaches courses in mindfulness, cognitive psychology, memory, and consciousness. I'm here today on The Soul of Life to talk with Dr. Schooler about his resonance theory of consciousness, how in some ways the hippies were right, and it's kind of all about vibrations, man. I mean, come on, that's what we're going to get down to here. Um, But actually, it's quite a serious field of scientific inquiry. And if there's one episode that I could call maybe a banner episode for my podcast, The Soul of Life, it's, it's this very subject, what we call our consciousness or in many traditional settings, our soul. We'll talk about the idea of how our mind, brain, body can get in into or out of sync with itself and with other minds. And what I think is a hopeful message of neuroplasticity, that is the ability of the brain to reorganize itself and grow and adapt to overcome chaos and get back into the flow of life. Dr. Schooler, how are you? Welcome. Thank you, Keith. It's wonderful to be with you. I'm I'm really delighted that you're w- willing and able to spend some time uh, in the middle of your teaching. I understand you're you're going back to in-person learning. Are you looking forward to that? Yeah, I'm I, I'm excited to uh, actually see the students again. It's been uh, been a long time, and and when you do online, there are a lot of things that uh, are I've actually learned from, but you, it's hard to get the same sort of uh, feedback from the from the students and right the resonance when you're actually teaching in person you can see that you can see the class you can feel it you get a sense of whether or not they're in sync or 
or, or mind wandering, which is a big topic of interest of mine. And so I'm excited to, to get back to, to feel their vibes. Yeah, that's cool. I mean, you know, I, I use that term a little bit tongue in cheek and following in line with some journalism that was following your work and kind of talking about this idea of, you know, the vibes and everything. And we, we can joke about it, but actually in, in my field, in our field, in applied uh, psychology and clinical psychology, we, we really do talk about resonance. We talk about feeling energy from people. And I think, uh, you know, I think everybody understands that idea that you get, you get energy or energy comes and goes in our body. I mean, like that we are, we are energetic creatures, uh, electrochemically speaking. Um, so we're not talking about anything weird here, right? But it, you know, there is that interesting sort of subset of uh, definition that comes from it. Tell me of how you came to study consciousness and why is this important to you? Yeah, well, I've been interested in consciousness ever since uh, I was a teenager. Um, I'm actually from a long line of psychologists. Both my mother and father uh, were academic psychologists. My brother, now my son, my, my daughter, aunt, uncle. So, so consciousness is uh, psychology sort of run in the blood. Uh, and consciousness has been um, a big part of that. When I was 14, my father gave me a book by Alan Watts uh, called The Book on the Depu Against Knowing Who We Are. Uh, if you haven't read it, I, it's a short book and it really changed my life. It was really all about thinking about consciousness and the place of consciousness in the I'll universe. Say, say the name again of the book, if you don't mind. It's called um, The Book on the Taboo Against Knowing Who You Are by Alan Watts. Mm. And, uh, and you know, I became interested in the Tao physics and the whole sort of uh, East meets West uh, topic area, which I think many people uh, at that time uh, were, but it, it really stuck with me. I should say that when I was in uh, graduate school and even as a um, assistant professor, Consciousness was still very much of a taboo topic in psychology. It was really sort of considered uh, far afield from the, you know, we had been steeped in something called behaviorism, just looking at behavior and consciousness just seemed too ethereal to, uh, to track. Uh, back in 1993, Jonathan Cohen and I organized a meeting on consciousness, scientific approaches to consciousness. And at the time, it seemed like a kind of radical thing to do. Uh, but now I'm, I'm really delighted to see the consciousness has really become much more mainstream. And, and all of us who were sort of closet admirers of are now able to really come out of it and uh, acknowledge how important and interesting a topic it is. Right, right. I suppose in some ways we're standing on the, on the shoulders of others like John Kabat-Zinn, some of these people who have come uh, like you say, out of the closet, as in his case, a Buddhist and Eastern tradition, but also a molecular biologist and able to speak to scientists and, and people like Dr. Daniel Siegel, who we both know and admire at UCLA, one of my teachers over the years um, on, on neuroplasticity, these people who are able to speak the language of both perhaps the spirit and soul and of science and that we're seeing Ah, okay. These, these religious folks, these ancient traditions, they have a language that's not clearly sci scientific, but it has, they're talking about an experience that's real. And it's almost as if Absolutely. these, the scientific communities is, is able now to pick up on this and, and use it. So that's, that's exciting to me. Absolutely. I, I think in addition to 
uh, consciousness uh, becoming uh, an acceptable topic for scientific study. Mindfulness is a, another beneficiary uh, of this greater open-mindedness that that science is taking. And uh, John Kabat-Zinn, absolutely, uh, and Dan Siegel, uh, another uh, researcher I really admire, uh, Richie Davidson, uh, all managed to take this concept that was, you know, really pretty much embedded in uh, Eastern uh, religion and recognize the, the psychology uh, that's embedded in it. And now there's just been literally thousands of studies uh, looking into mindfulness and the ways in which mindfulness can uh, be integrated into uh, our lives, the techniques and the, the sort of the remarkable different areas and degrees to it, uh, a practice of mindfulness can be uh, really helpful. And indeed, we've created a center here at UCSB, the Center for Mindfulness and Human Potential, where we're really dedicated to understanding how to take a very secular version, which is really about helping people to be grounded in the present, to enhance their focus, and to be uh, a little bit more uh, non-judgmental about the thoughts that cross their mind. There's this bumper sticker that I quite love, don't believe everything you think. And just recognizing that just because some chatter went off in your head doesn't mean that you necessarily have to endorse that. So just sort of taking more of the perspective of the witness of your thoughts as opposed to uh, having to be endorsing everything that crosses your mind. Right, right. Uh, I know in, in this sort of culture we live in, sort of like we want concrete things. We want to know kind of a prescription or toolkit. People say, people, even like we hear this in our conversations about very difficult topics like race and and and, and identity in our politics. People want to know what to do and how to respond and, and the tools. And yet we're often, I think those of us that are healers or in this, in this work and have a spiritual dimension understand that it's really about noticing, like you said, and paying attention and mindfulness, this idea of paying attention on purpose just for the sake yeah. of it, right? Absolutely. Not, tr not trying to get anywhere, which is so radical to our, to our culture, but also it's radical to the, to any stressful experience. If you're stressed, you, your, the body gets ahead of the mind, um, in some ways. So it is wonderful to see this emerging in the culture. And we're going to talk about that word emerging, uh, a little bit. You know, speaking of Dan Siegel, um, who, who speaks and teaches on interpersonal neurobiology, uh, teaches a lot in the therapist community. He speaks in his training um, of psychiatry being really devoid of any definition whatsoever of what the mind is. Uh, and he, and he finds that so, you know, he's taught over the years how, how puzzling that had been and really a driving force for him to create and, and bring others into this conversation on, Hey, let's start doing that. Let's talk to the people in physics. Let's talk to the people in, who study energy flow, right? And inf information flow and probabilities, mathematics. Let's bring these people together. And his definition, that he speaks about frequently is that the mind is an emergent, self-organizing, embodied, and relational process that regulates the flow of energy and information. And and I'm curious about you how you define that. You study consciousness also, and curious how you you know would you add to that? Would you you know what is consciousness from your perspective? The interesting thing about consciousness is it at the same time the single thing that we know best from our own first-person perspective and understand least 
from the perspective of objective science. There's, there's really nothing else that has this weird dichotomy of, you know, it absolutely. I mean, I can't give you a definition of consciousness that will be better than your own experience of it. You, you know, consciousness better than anything else. That's in, in, in sort of Descartes terms. That's all you know. I think therefore I am. What he really meant to say is I'm conscious. Therefore I'm conscious. That, that that is the one thing that we know with uh with absolute certainty. I very much like the definition of consciousness that's implied by the philosopher Thomas Nagel in his very influential paper called What It's Like to Be a Bat. And essentially, the argument is that consciousness is that there is something like to be that thing. So there is something it's like to be you. There's something it's like to be me. We presume, many of us, some people don't, that there's something it's like to be a bat. But um, in all likelihood, uh, there's nothing it's like to be a rock. Uh, now, I'm actually excited to talk about this because I actually think it's possible that rocks may be um, an aggregate of tiny little particles of something for which there's also something it's like to be is the notion of a panpsychism. But basically, the idea is that there is a perspective of, and that of experience. And that is what consciousness is. So I treat experience as a synonym for consciousness. And I love to speculate about all the things that may be privileged to have such an experience. Right, right. You, you mentioned panpsychism. And, and I think a lot of, in a lot of rooms that I've been in, people will sort of sometimes apologize and say, well, I don't, I don't want this to sound too woo-woo. I think they're trying to say like, you know, don't take this the wrong way. I don't think rocks have feelings or something like that, right? But but that what you're getting at is that that there is something going on at an energetic and, and arguably measurable level in all matter. It seems like you've kind of steered head on into this question of, yes, we can embrace that all things have some level of psychic energy. When it comes to consciousness, uh, given how difficult it is to explain what's known as the hard problem, which is how is it that this three-pound meatloaf of a brain is able to create subjective experience, and the fact that we really do not have even an iota of an idea of how the first-person experience emerges from the objective world, that it's really important to maintain humility and to recognize that there are um, uh, a variety of classes of explanations, I have a spirit of uh, open-mindedness uh, really uh, explored what I think is one genuine possibility, uh, and that is that there, the consciousness represents some fundamental aspect of uh, physical reality that is instantiated potentially at some very, very tiny, maybe strings, who knows what the, what the smallest unit of it is. And that through some process, and we speculate it's resonance, that, um, smaller bits organized together into increasingly larger hierarchical organized conscious states. So I think that that is a, uh, very, uh, plausible account known as panpsychism. At the same time, I'm also sympathetic to the possibility of uh, emergentism. And this is where uh, I and uh, my collaborator, Pam Hunt, uh, differ a little bit. He is a, a devout panpsychist. He's 
put all of his uh, money on that. And I, um, I entertain that. I'm, uh, I strongly think that that is a viable possibility, but I'm also open to the possibility that there may be some, uh, sort of minimum amount of organization of information integration, uh, that is uh, necessary to, uh, create consciousness. So this raises on the one hand the possibility that perhaps consciousness is highly distributed, but there's a cutoff point. So perhaps only living things, for example, uh, are uh, capable of consciousness, but even possibly the smallest living things, a bacteria may have a iota of consciousness. And then there's even a higher level of emergence. Maybe it's only systems with a nervous system uh, that have it, or you can, can go higher up. So I think that this is a tractable question, potentially some degree, because if you imagine that we have these nested hierarchies, uh, something that uh, we've referred to as nested observer windows or nows that uh, are organizing information. And it may be that these nested observer windows are conscious at all different levels. So cells and um, uh, and then uh, brain regions may each have their own separate consciousness, or there may just be in an individual's brain, just one center location for consciousness. I think all of these are possible, but I I'm delighted and enjoy talking about the really intriguing possibility that consciousness goes all the way down. Right, right. And um, we're going to talk about the, the experience, my experience with multiplicity of the mind, which I think is a wonderful parallel to what you're what you're dealing with at a fundamental sort of level of matter and energy. What you're speaking of, um, you know, let's. I think let's talk a little bit about this idea of sync that was made popular by uh, Stephen Strugat's work. Back in two thousand three, I mean, prior to that, I think ninety, going back to ninety eight, he he's one of these folks who, um, I think, the book for the popular, for the general public was called "Sync: How Order Emerges from Chaos in the Universe, Nature, and Daily Life." But his work, I mean, you have a lot of uh, citations in your work. I'm very impressed with the number of citations over thirty two thousand uh, citing your work. Strogatz's work on small mode networks; it's a mathematical ne- uh, model, is one of the most cited works ever in physics, and that's just one of the it's just a, it's an astounding uh, fact, I guess. But it it says so much about how fundamental these questions are. You're, you, some of his examples, I want to talk about this in the, on the macro for a moment. Things like the way the Earth and the Moon phase sync, so that the the face of the Moon, we are always seeing the same face of the Moon, right? And and it's like, well, you can look at that and say, wow, there seems to be some divine order to this, or you know, also, but you see, begin to see the sequence happening in lots of other places um how how birds navigate together or how fireflies all decide to light up at the same time and there's maybe other examples you you might be able to speak to but you're i think you're speaking to this idea that we can see it on the macro we kind of know that there is this extremely um uh, for one thing just beautiful um when, when you see sync in nature you just it's just beautiful it's like how what it's, it's mysterious it's awesome um, it's happening in our heart, the way our heart beats every second. All these muscle uh, neurons that fire together at the same time <laughs> and coordinate. Um, and of course, we don't have to talk about the mathematics because that's neither one of our field here. But what's your what's your take on how influential Strogatz's work is? Yeah, I think that um, Strogatz has uh, really had a, a huge impact in terms of us appreciating the magnitude 
to which synch synchronization between different systems uh, takes place and also formalizing some of the, uh, the mathematics uh, behind that. One of the examples that he uh, talks about that I think really helps to sort of capture the, uh, the elegance of the synchronization process is if you take two metronomes and you put them on a, uh, on a shared uh, plank and then you set them off, initially they will uh, be doing their own separate thing to their own timer, but, but within a matter of minutes, they will come to synchronize. They're, the shared vibration uh, creates a, rather than maintaining their separate sync, separate uh, swinging patterns, they come in sync. And this, this tendency for systems that are uh, in some way uh, connected to one another to uh, get into the uh, shared frequency is really quite remarkable. Uh, another classic example, I don't remember where this bridge was, but there was a walking bridge Oh, London, uh, I think. Is it London? That's right. I yeah. Think so. And, um, this walking bridge, uh, they designed it. Um, but what they hadn't designed into it was the prospect that everybody who walked on the bridge would start walking in sync. And so the bridge started swaying and, and it was really quite dangerous. They had to completely redesign uh, the bridge because they hadn't built into it this, this appreciation of uh, synchronization. So it seems to be. Uh, a really sort of fundamental aspect of nature that that systems that are connected it only happens with systems that have some connectivity uh, end up sharing rhythms right so in other words it's it's not magical it's not this sort of like and even when you get to quantum physics and entanglement which we're not even going to deal with today that that's what einstein described as spooky action at a distance we're not even talking about that we're just talking about actual uh, some sort of electrochemical communication or some vibration, which is, you know, molecules vibrating and being picked up, right? So they're, they're connected. It's not, it's not magic, but that's, it's not magic. That said, uh, and this again is in with respect to the, uh, uh, open minded perspective. And, and I think it was sort of Arthur C. Clarke who said something like everything is magic until we understand. It. And so I yeah. do think that it is possible that there could be fields or kinds of vibrations that are as of yet not uh, recognized that may also be uh, synchronized. But that wouldn't be magic, so to speak, either. It would just be uh, additional uh, characteristics of uh, reality that we, we come to understand. And if they, if they do exist, if there are some, say, additional types of waves or uh, manner in which uh, synchronization could take place, it seems very likely that indeed synchronization would happen. And then the other thing I would say is that uh, we are also um, thinking uh, increasingly about the possibility of a synchronization you know, happening through the electromagnetic field. And the electromagnetic field really may provide some kind of a medium for consciousness. We, uh, we routinely recognize this in terms of the uh, behavior of neurons, which of course for which you know electricity uh, travels uh, down them through the action potentials, but it's also possible that neurons may uh, and and e even uh, other cells, glials and so on, uh, may uh, communicate with each other uh, through the electromagnetic field itself, and that that may serve as another medium for uh, synchronization and resonance. Wow. 
What are the kinds of questions your lab works with as it relates to this resonance theory of, of consciousness? Sure. Well, um, one uh, really uh, fascinating topic has to do with uh, EEGs and um, looking at the relationship um, between uh, brainwave uh, states and the ways in which different areas of the brain can come to synchronize with one another. And one of the uh, intriguing ideas that we're just beginning to uh, consider is the possibility that um, the brainwave states that you may find resonance between uh, different rhythms uh, in the body. So we, we certainly see uh, resonance, say, between uh, brainwave, between one part of the brain and another. But what about between the brain and the heart or between the heart and the gut? And so beginning to look for uh, patterns of uh, resonance from the, the very fast ones associated to the brains to, to slower ones and seeing that the potential that even though they're at a very different scale, that there's still some kind of uh, synchronization uh, between them seems uh, follows from our uh, theorizing. And so that's a, an area that we're actively pursuing. So different systems within the body, like like signals coming from the gut to the brain, for example. I forget, is that afferent or efferent or what uh signals? Yeah. Um and and, right. and how, how they how they loop back. How they how they loop back and how they get into resonance uh with one another. And then um you might also expect that the um the further uh, away uh they are, the uh the slower the uh, wave frequency because the slower waves um, can travel further. The other thing that's really interesting is looking at the uh, resonance between people mm. uh, and the possibility that not only do we have a shared resonance between different portions uh, within our uh, bodies, but also between people. And uh, it is very interesting that when uh, people uh, talk, there is a a rhythm of uh, communication, uh, and that rhythm itself may actually be uh, informative. It, it, it seems quite plausible that uh, people who are more in sync in their conversations will have a more uh, exciting, will feel, will have a better conversation. And we're even looking into creativity. So, is it the case that when people are really in sync, which you can actually measure in terms of the pattern of, of rhythms, uh, that they end up being more creative. So I think right. the idea of looking at uh, synchronization, not just stopping at the body, but between individuals is a, is a really exciting direction. Right, right. To me, as a, as a clinical, uh, in the field of clinical psychology, practicing as a psychotherapist, it's, it's such an important question. I mean, I suppose it could be debated nature versus nurture. Are some people more mindful? Are some people born more with traits um, that allow them to be in in rhythm with themselves and with others? But I'm always, I, I never get, I, I sort of, to me, that's a hang up. Like I, I'm always interested in, well, how can we create um, either rhythms in our life or rituals? Rituals, I think, are something that we're, I think we're still grieving the loss of our collective rituals together as a culture, but, um, in, 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 in seeing that played out in, in, in medicine, right. Seeing that played out in stress diseases. Um, so I'm always interested in how we can, how we can find ways to reconnect or, or, you know, rediscover who we are, 
who we're meant to be, that sort of thing. And it sounds like this work has the potential to do that. Well, I, 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 I do want to come back to this idea of a couple of things. First off, yes, almost always when you say, is it nature or nurture? Uh, the answer is yes. There's, there's always going to be a nature element and a, a nurture element. And, um, at some level, um, there's for all of us, there's probably some sort of, uh, pre existing range, uh, on, on any attribute that we, will fall in, but all of us can move on virtually every dimension that we're interested in. Right. And this right. is the importance of what's known as the growth mindset, the recognition that you can really develop in virtually any area if you set your mind to it. And there's so much research which shows that when people adopt a growth mindset, appreciation that they can cultivate skills, uh, that that can be, that, that really is true and it really can be helpful. And I do think that uh, we can uh, learn to uh, build uh, rhythms uh, and, and, and an appreciation of them. One very powerful technique to get in sort of in touch with your own rhythms is, of course, meditation, coming back to the topic of mindfulness. And we have this rhythm that we live with 24 hours a day, which is our breath. Mm. And uh, it is such a remarkably grounding experience to just watch the natural rhythm of the breath. Uh, I think people oftentimes think, you know, well, that seems like just what a great waste of time just sitting there watching your breath. But it really turns out that that just attending to the breath, just watching it come in, watching it go out, leads to this capacity for feeling grounded, for feeling focused, for feeling sort of in touch with oneself. Uh, so to speak. And it, uh, it's, it's, it, I, I don't want to underplay its challenge. It, I've, I've done meditation for a long time. I imagine you have too. And no matter, uh, I, I mean, there are some people who are, you know, supremely good at it, but we all, when we try to do it, find our minds wandering and, uh, you have to just be patient and let your mind come back to the breath. And so it's, it's something that, that's effortful. Um, but with uh, a commitment to focusing on it, it really can make a difference. And once you do, you can then take that uh, awareness and apply it through your daily life. So when you're walking, when you're uh, in different situations, you can get back into that space of attending to the, attending to the rhythm and uh, experiencing the grounding that that provides. Right. Right. One of my favorite things to tell people who are maybe a little skeptical, a little unsure that it's going to really have the benefit that you're describing is well, okay, you don't have to sit and meditate, but when you're next time you're in the shower, um, or even we can go with brushing your teeth, like just really be in the shower. And we talk about what that means for a minute. Like, oh, oh, okay. Like really, like let your, let, let yourself be transported to the shower and nowhere else. <laughs> yeah. I, I love that. I mean, showers are, are so interesting in of itself. I mean, who knows? My guess is that, you know, some significant proportion of all creative ideas have happened yeah. uh, in in showers. So showers are pretty uh, pretty special places. But brushing your teeth, you know, you don't hear that much about, um, you know, the great ideas that people had while they no. were uh, brushing <laughs> their teeth. So that is, uh, but, but brushing your teeth, you know, has a rhythm. And um, I have personally found that it's an excellent opportunity for uh, for mindfulness. So you can take that very same two minutes 
and just really just check in, just really trying to hold your attention on getting every tooth and just sort of moving mm-hmm. in a mm-hmm. uh, in a systematic way. And yeah, uh, there there's an opportunity. When you first wake up in the morning, uh, just uh, taking a, a minute or two to focus uh, on your breath. When you're in line, uh, instead of checking your phone, uh, maybe just take uh, a moment to uh, watch your breath. Walking places. Uh, there's so many opportunities to just to fit in uh, mindful moments. Right. I remember when there's a study that came out. It's it's also a highly, highly studied, uh, cited study on on happiness and satisfaction. When when smartphones just came out, uh, researchers were taking advantage of these this ability to ping people and, and check and survey them at different times during their day. Well, what are you doing now? And so people would report what they're doing and then they would ping them again. Well, you know, can you rate on a scale of one to 10? Are you actually paying attention to what you're doing or are you distracted? And then... How happy or unhappy do you feel? And you know, overwhelmingly, people who reported that they were actually paying attention to what they were doing, whether they were in traffic or, to your point, uh, in a you know line for their COVID vaccine or something, even if it was a painful experience or uncomfortable experience, they reported happiness or satisfaction if they were paying attention to what they were doing versus if they're in traffic and fiddling with their you know radio and phone and you know mind wandering. And now it, I want to point out for people that you, when you mentioned mind wandering, you've, you've spent more than I think the average person who teaches mindfulness, uh, a good deal of, uh, of critical, um, you know, time in your labs, to, uh, looking at mind wandering. Can you speak to that, that work that you've done? Please take the time now to subscribe to the soul of life, wherever you're listening, give it a thumbs up or write a positive review. That's the best way to make sure you don't miss out on these amazing episodes planned for season two. Sure. Um, yeah, well, and I have to admit that <clears throat> in psychology, uh, research is me-search oftentimes. And so not only have I spent a lot of time uh, studying mind-wandering, but I've also spent a lot of time uh, engaging in mind-wandering. And and the research that you were just uh, describing by uh, uh Killingsworth and my good friend Dan Gilbert um, did. It was it was titled "A Wandering Mind Is an Unhappy Mind," and uh, their their finding is is quite robust. When people are mind wandering, they're less happy than when they're on task. But I, I do want to um, say a couple caveats uh, about that. The first is that we have a, a follow up paper called "A the Silver Lining to a Mind in the Clouds," and. Uh, this was based on uh, sort of my experience as an uh, absent-minded professor that uh, routinely I will be walking along with my mind in the clouds but uh, and, and sort of rather oblivious to who walks by and, and the world around me, but but quite happy. And the, the reason is because I'm thinking about something that genuinely interests me. I'm thinking, uh, you know, I'm the absent-minded professor, mind-wandering about mind-wandering. <laughs> and... Uh, what we found is we replicated Killingsworth and Gilbert. So overall, when people were mind-wandering, they were less happy than when they were on task. But if they were mind-wandering about something that they were especially happy, or excuse me, that they were especially interested in, that they that were really curious about, they were actually happier than when they were on task. So uh, there's a particular kind of sort of mind-wandering about interesting topics that really engage you, something that I call mind-wondering. Uh, that, uh, seems to, uh, be, be very different. And so it, it seems that 
uh, all mind wandering is not created equal. If you're worrying, if you're perseverating about um, concerns that uh, are uh, in your future or something that you did in your past, that is likely to make you less happy. But if you are thinking about something that you're uh, really interested in, really uh, excited about, uh, that can be that can be helpful. So mm. I think uh, there really is sort of a middle way. Uh, it is important to be um, it's important to be present. It's important to uh, cultivate uh, an awareness of our situations. It's important to recognize that when we want to focus, we can that we have the control, the reins of our minds to be able to really target um, the topic that we want to attend to. But mm -hmm. engaging in uh, playful, creative uh, wandering of the mind can also be uh, pleasant. And we also have research that shows that um, about 20% of the creative ideas of writers and physicists that we uh, sample, we gave them a daily diary and every day did you have a creative idea and asked when did you when did you have it what were the circumstances and what we found is about 20 percent of the time the ideas did not happen when they were at their desk they happened when they were in the shower mine one they happened when they were uh gardening when they were you know maybe even paying the check and um and these ideas were as creative as the ideas that they actually had when they were uh at work so it seems mm. that that mind wandering can be very problematic. It's associated with uh, traffic accidents. Uh, it's associated with, we've shown that it's associated with poor reading comprehension. Everyone has had the experience of reading along and suddenly realize that their eyes are moving across the page, but their mind has been elsewhere. And that is decidedly associated with poor reading comprehension. Same in lectures. People mind water in lectures. They don't retain the information, but <laughs> There's an upside to mind wandering, which is that it can be an opportunity to have uh, creative ideas. And the creative ideas that people have when they're mind wandering seem to be of a particular type. They seem to be overcoming an impasse, something which you were stumped on. So, you know, that old expression, um, I need to sleep on that. Well, mm -hmm. sleep on it or, or mind wander. Night dreaming or daydreaming may be the solution to cracking that uh, impasse. Right. And, and, it's which is just fascinating what you're saying and, and i'm i'm thinking of so many connections to to how we help people in the mental health field get in touch with uh, especially in my work with ifs internal family systems dick schwartz's work with natural multiplicity um which presents this model of of you know this idea that the mind has all these different parts and that we can at different times be either connected to them sort of as the hub or the orchestra conductor or dissociated from them. And, and when they are taking over, and I want to ask you about the distinction here between maybe a dissociative state or a state that could get us into trouble. Let's, you know, let's just say we, you know, we've, we've wandered so far that we've really, you know, our, we've ignored our wife and kids or something. Now they're yelling at us or the driver in front of behind us is honking at us, you know, um, that there, do you distinguish in your research between dissociative kind of, um, maybe what we might say a protective a protector of somebody coming in to take them out of a situation. They just can't stand this lecture they're in with you. And <laughs> just, it's so painful. They're going to, it reminds them of something shameful or well, who knows that just taken out versus they're stimulated by curiosity and what you, the resonance with you. And then they're taken into some, a higher place. You know, do you distinguish between the two? Yeah, there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of nuanced, um, 
subtlety to the different kinds of mind wandering that people can uh, engage in. And it's only really been in the last 10 to 15 years that researchers have really sort of taken on mind wandering. There was a handful of really important pioneers in mind wandering. Um, Jerome Singer and various other uh, antrovists who've who really sort of set, set the stage. But it's only really been in the last 10, 15 years that there's been this sort of cottage industry of research and, and mind wandering. And initially, the focus was just sort of on, on task versus off task. And increasingly, we're looking at different kinds of mind wandering. And one uh, sort of important set of distinctions is whether or not it's deliberate. Mm. If you're intentionally mind wandering or if uh, you're mind wandering without intention and relatedly, if you know you're mind wandering, whether or not, or if you don't. And in general, um, the mind wandering, which is more intentional and people are more aware of so sort of mindful mind wandering uh, seems to uh, be the kind that uh, tends to be uh, more productive and less um, problematic. And of course, this makes a lot of sense. If you don't know you're mind wandering, uh, then you may be mind wandering at really inopportune times, right? You don't want your surgeon, uh, mind wandering. Uh, right. they, 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 you know, maybe when the nurse is, is doing the stitches or there's a, there's a, a moment, that's fine. And we find, for example, we looked at pilots and mm. found that they were strategic uh, in their mind wandering. They mind wandered, you know, at certain times. And then when things got challenging, they brought it back. Uh, to task. So there really hmm. seems to be uh, a uh, a variety of different kinds of mind wandering and they have uh, different characteristics. Hmm. And then, hmm. uh, as you mentioned, there is, it is possible to get into this really sort of more dissociated state where you uh, have lost track of the fact that you're mind wandering, uh, that you, you aren't doing it deliberately. And when you are in really this sort of absorbed, distracted kind of mind wandering, that's when you're most likely to, uh, you know, have a car accident, uh, most likely to uh, miss important things, um, to not be engaged uh, with uh, with other individuals when they're speaking to you, uh, and so on. So that seems to be the kind of mind wandering that can be uh, the most problematic. Mm. It sounds almost as if we're, we're like that. We need to call it like a flexible mind wandering. That like you're walking down the hall and you're you're you have the opportunity and freedom and you take it and, and yeah. you, your mind goes someplace pleasurable or perhaps someplace where your mind just needs to go. It may be grief, it may be sorrow, maybe sadness, um, but it is an important place to go for you. And then if and then as you as the need arises arises in your environment, you're able to come out of it. Go go into it. Come out of it. Go into it. Come out of it. Frequently. Exactly. So it's yeah. Um, fascinating. And, and you mentioned earlier the, the connection here be- between people, that there's, there, there's resonance between people. I've, I've studied attachment and written on attachment my entire career, attachment psychology, developmental psychology. And that's, as you point out, from, you know, such a development from behaviorism, um, that there is this interplay that we need each other. We belong to each other, um, uh, in our culture, in our wider culture, but in our families, right? And, and in our communities. Um, it, to me, that the coherence between people is such a vital issue for all of us that if, if we have families 
who can't stay together or 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 in, or in conflict with each other, then we're of course we're going to have a society in conflict with each other at greater degrees. So I, to me, it feels like a it's just near to my heart um, that subject. Do you do you have uh, tips or ideas about how people co-regulate, or if they're struggling with co-regulating, they're they're maybe antagonizing each other, they're out of sync <laughs> with their partner. Um, what what does the research say about that? Well, uh, there's some very interesting research which uh, had this is research that uh, Tali Wheatley at, at Dartmouth was uh, involved in that had individuals. Uh, listen to uh, material uh, together, uh, or, or actually, they, they listen to mat- the same material, and then uh, she looked to see the degree to which there was a similarity, uh, so an, a certain kind of synchronization uh, between uh, their uh, uh, brain uh, activity uh, as a function of when the uh, material was was happening, uh, and what she found was a really interesting pattern. Uh, the, the people, friends, uh, showed, um, the, uh, greatest amount of synchronization. And, uh, friends of friends showed a lesser degree, but a, but some synchronization. But friends of friends of friends, uh, showed, uh, no, no synchronization at all. So it's actually interesting that we actually choose people to, um, to spend time with. Uh, who are, who are more, uh, literally, uh, synced up with. Uh, mm-hmm. I think this is a really, uh, a, a fascinating, uh, a phenomenon. So it suggests that, uh, spending time with the people you really care about is a way to, uh, spend time with people whom you'll be, uh, in, in sync with. Uh, mm-hmm. in, in terms of how do we, uh, learn to, uh, increase our synchronization, uh, with others? I think that's a, um, a, a really, uh, intriguing, uh, question. And, and I'll sort of throw two, uh, maybe contradictory ideas uh, out at you and we'll see if we can, um, yeah. Yeah, unpack them. Uh, on the one hand, I, there, there's, um, this thing that I refer to as meta awareness, which is where you, your awareness of your awareness. And, um, uh, this is, comes up all the time in the case of mindfulness. So when you realize that your, your mind has wandered away from the breath and you catch yourself and you bring it back, that's a, that's a moment of, of meta-awareness. When you're reading and you realize that your uh, mind has wandered and you have to figure out where you were last paying attention, that's a moment of meta-awareness. And so meta-awareness can be a uh, very useful for, uh, helping us to, um, uh, sort of Get our minds, uh, where they can be. But I think that awareness can also, uh, get, get carried away. So if you're in a social setting and you're thinking, geez, am I, uh, am I embarrassing myself here? And I wonder what that person is thinking about me. And you know, we sort of at that whole level right. of, uh, hypercritical, of hypercritical analysis. It can kind of sort of pull you out. Uh, of the uh, situation, uh, there's a a phenomena known as the uh, I think it's called the uh, chameleon effect, where um, if two people are in the same posture, uh, if they like each other, they'll get in the same posture, and and people sort of respond positively to other people if they're adopting the same uh, stance. Mm-hmm. But um, it feels 
you know, kind of uh, unnatural if you're always paying attention to, gee, oh, that person's right. adopting the same posture as me, or I'm going to adopt the same posture as um, the other person. Right. So on the one hand, I do think that um, uh, sort of mindfulness may be helpful for uh, noticing if you're, you know, really doing something that's problematic or possibly upsetting the other person and sort of checking in and 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 noting and uh, being aware of the impact that you may be having. But at the same time, it, 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 if one can strive to begin to sort of automatize those skills, so you're not having to check in all the time uh, and disrupting the flow, uh, mm-hmm. I think that's also something to strive for. So again, it's kind of a, mm-hmm. a middle ground. It's a bit like in tennis, you know, yeah. you get into this wonderful, you can get into this moment where like every, you're just in flow, you're, you're just really hitting the ball. But if you think to yourself, wow, this is great. I'm in flow. Yeah. It can, it can knock you out of it. So it's, yeah. it's sort yeah. of this delicate balancing act between being as, uh, being attentive to, uh, things that can sort of help create a good dynamic, but then letting go of them uh, and letting the natural rhythm of the conversation, the natural rhythm of the interaction take over. That makes a lot of sense. It sounds like practice really does, like whether it's tennis or or anything else with with our loved relationships. I don't think I necessarily signed up for 20 years of marriage thinking that, oh, it's going to take all this practice. I thought, well, this is, we're just going to be happy together and it's just going to happen. But come to find out, just like my tennis game, <laughs> if I'm not doing the reps and getting out there and and thinking somewhat critically, not overcritically, but somewhat critically, like why am I hitting it? off like that why am i spraying it off you know instead of nailing it to the corner why am i you know hitting it wide then uh, i'm not going to be set up for success i'm going to be out of rhythm with my tennis partner and my whether it's my opponent or my or my spouse or my i suppose my spouse would become my opponent if i'm not careful i'd rather have my spouse be my tennis partner (laughs) (laughs) Um, so this, I mean, this is just, it sounds like your work has so wide, so many wide reaching uh, implications. I'm so grateful for you and your time and the work that you're doing. Um, tell me about the Center for Mindfulness and Human Potential. Is there anything you want to promote about that or ways people can get in touch with you? Sure. Um, yeah. So we have a very exciting project going on now through the Center of Mindfulness and Human Potential. We have a program uh, that's called Finding Focus. And it is a program that's introduced in high schools around the country uh, to help high schools deal and learn with how to manage their attention. This is a, a, a major challenge for uh, people of all ages, but especially high school students. Distraction is just so rampant. And we have this uh, program that's um, being adopted. We're, we're currently uh, testing it, but it's all based on evidence-based uh, research. And, and essentially, the program involves uh, some very simple lessons on uh, how to control your focus, how to anchor into a, a particular uh, thing, such as uh, the, the lecture or, or your breath, and then uh, how to release distracting thoughts and bring yourself back. And then it has something called daily beats, which is uh, meditation opportunities to music. And you get to mm. choose your uh, choice of music. And we're finding, we've now published a couple of papers on this, that students who 
uh, go through this um, relatively brief 21-day course uh, report um, significant improvements in their focus, reduced mind wandering, and even uh, reduced stress and improved well-being. So it's a really uh, uh, exciting uh, program. And uh, if you're interested in learning more about it, you can uh, email me at um, schooler at psych.ucsb.edu. That's P-S-Y-C-H dot U-C-S-B dot E-D-U. And um, we're also, uh, we provide this uh, to schools. Uh, so you can encourage your uh, school to um, uh, to get on and currently offering it for free. So it's a really uh, exciting program. We'd encourage your listeners to avail themselves of. Great. I, I will get on that in our county, in Montgomery County, Maryland here and, and get and, and, and check it out and see if I can put it in the hands of people that that can do something to, to, to give our students, um, you know, these resources. I have two teenagers. Um, do you, I don't know if you have kids, but, uh, you know, it's, it's something that is near and dear to my heart to, to know how fragmented, how demanding the, their attention is, how, how many demands are on their attention. Uh, we want to give them the phones. We, we want them to be able to be in touch with us and be safe. And at the same time, the world that opens up to them is, is is not a world that I'm I'm excited about as far as the fragmented attention I've read something about you know uh, nowadays that we're 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 switching tasks every 10 minutes like you know instead of being able to do deep work so this this skill it just strikes me as how important it is we're dealing with an epidemic of depression and suicide in our culture that if we care about those things which I think we all do you know way upstream is this really low hanging fruit hey we can teach our kids how to settle into a rhythm in their body and, and, and realize that the, the tools that we give them to do their work, like their phones and computers, they're not bodies and they're not going to be syncing up with us. They're, they're going to be in some ways taking energy from us. We need to find other ways to, and it's, it's so hopeful to me. There's a lot of bad news we can report about kids these days or, or technology these days, but I, I think of it as Wow, there's so many, there's low, so much low hanging fruit. The brain and mind and body respond. Like you said, it's like two or three weeks. You see results and you see a difference in people's affect and their concentration levels. That's, that's absolutely. Remarkable. Yeah. I think there's a real promise that uh, we can teach our kids habits of mind that will um, put them in good stance and will help them to learn to balance the uh, increasing variety of demands on their attention. And yes, uh, you know, our, our, our smartphones, uh, and tablets, you know, can be a source of distraction, but they can also be a source of learning mindfulness and, right. uh, can, can be beneficial here. And they can even, you know, teach us to put them down. So, yeah. uh, there's hope. Yeah, there's, there's hope. Well, it's been great getting in sync with you, Dr. Jonathan Schooler. I really appreciate your, your willingness to speak on this topic and, and just the, the incredible work that you're doing. Um, thank you very much. It's been my pleasure, Keith. Thanks for listening to The Soul of Life. This is Keith Miller. Oh, and don't forget, please leave a thumbs up or a like for this episode wherever you're listening so that others like you may find the soul of life. I mean, Really, it's not every day you get to share the soul of life with someone. Okay, so you can post a comment or question on souloflifeshow.com. I'd love to hear from you. 
And please subscribe now to get the next episode. I look forward to sharing more of my soul of life with you. I like it and it's not harsh to my eardrum. All right, I will go. The reason why my evaluations have gone up is mostly due to the bird.